along in your Bible, if you would join me in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, and uh, we're going to read verse 1 down to verse 12. And when you find your place, if you would stand in honor of God's wonderful word this morning. It's nice to have that sun out today, wasn't it? It's always, uh, seems like sometimes in the winter you can go a few days without the sun, and uh, what a joy to see. Matthew 7, verse 1, we're going to read down to verse number 12. The Bible says, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. If you read verse 7 with me, ask and it shall be given you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. He goes on to say, for everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you of whom, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Don't raise your hand. Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? And then if you'd read verse 12 as we conclude. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. God bless you. You may be seated. When you get into Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the Bible tells us at the end of every day of creation, God said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then at the end of seventh, the sixth day of creation, when everything was finished being created, God said it was very good. But the only thing God said it was not good was that man was alone. And he said, I will make him a helpmeet for him. And so we have God making Eve from the rib of a man and bringing him bringing her unto Adam, and she was his perfect match. And in Genesis 2, marriage was instituted by God. And marriage is truly a blessing. Family is such a gift of God. Children, grandchildren. I was talking to one grandmother today, and her and her husband were so excited about the grandbabies in their lives. And today we had new, eight new babies dedicated to the Lord. If you haven't had a child in a while, just it's time to have another one, right? Uh, it's a way to grow the church just through the nursery. But not only is our family, our immediate blood family, a great blessing in our life, and what a joy, but also our church family. I love Lighthouse Baptist Church. I love my church family. God has made us as relational beings. We need each other. And yet, even in the midst of the blessedness of marriage, of children, of family, of a church family and friends, we also have to deal in navigate through the challenge of sin. Genesis 3 and 4, after God had instituted marriage and the blessedness of the family, there was the fracturing power of sin that emerged in Genesis 3 and 4. And, and the sin that fractured the first family is also the same sins that fracture our family and friendships and Christian relationships. God's word calls us not to ignore sins in our lives, nor the sins of others. Many have falsely and 
interpreted Genesis, or Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that ye be not judged, as though you should never confront anyone about anything they do wrong. And if that's the case, then parents can no longer discipline their children. But love does not ignore a spouse's sin, especially because it causes that person great harm as well as the marriage, but rather they, out of love, seek to remove the sin from that person's life by speaking love and truth and confronting such things. Love also does not ignore a child's sin because we know what sin can do in messing that child's life up as well as their relationship with God. Love doesn't ignore a friend who goes into sin because they know what kind of damage that would do to that person's life spiritually as well as their their relationships. And one of the hardest things that we have to do in life as Christians is navigate those conversations and confrontations. And it's, it's, it's not easy to handle uh, those situations in our lives, whether with marriages, friends, children, parents. There, there's, there's a lot of different things that you have to work through. And today, I want to look at what Jesus Christ says in His Word about how to work through those challenges in relationships. In light of the great joy of relationships, there also brings great challenges because of the indwelling sin that we all have in our own lives you know, the Bible says marriage is not only for better, but also for what? And that's a reality. So today I want to look at the golden rule that our Lord gives us as we start with God's principle. This is God's guiding principle we are to live by. If I were to ask you, what are you to be motivated by? What would be the foundational truth that God has given to us in teaching us how to work through relationships on a human scale? What would be your answer? And according to the Bible, the top shelf issue for God is that we would love one another. James chapter 2 verse 8 says this, If ye fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, thou doest well. And James calls loving one another the royal law. Galatians 5.14 says, For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Our love for one another is what Jesus commands of us, according to John 13, verse 34 and 5. He says, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. And he says this, as I have loved you. We're to love one another as Christ loved us. And then he goes on to say, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one toward another. It is indeed the love that we have for one another that reflects our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not only are we to love each other, which can sometimes be very easy to do, but we're also to love our enemies. In Matthew 5, verse 43 and 4, Jesus says we are to love our enemies and to bless those that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That is a very difficult thing for the natural man to do. Now, Matthew 7, verse 12 really encompasses this love. It is the fleshing out of that. And so the first word in verse 12 is therefore. And whenever you see therefore, it is always written for a purpose. It's tying in the previous truths with a concluding statement. So therefore, what you've just learned in verse 1 through 11, what you've really learned in this entire Sermon on the Mount, therefore is what he's saying. And he says, therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, In other words, how you want others to treat you, he says, do ye even so to them. And then he says this, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the culmination of that reality. This is the fulfillment of that. 
you want others to be merciful to you, then be merciful to them. If you want others to forgive you, then you forgive them. If you want others to be kind to you, that's what you need to do to them. You will find versions, interestingly, of the golden rule among the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, even among Buddhists and Hindus. They all have a version of the golden rule. But what is extremely interesting is when you study those out, they all put it as a thou shall not. They all put it in a negative light. It's a negative command. For example, Rabbi Hillel, which is a leading Jewish rabbi in the first century, said this, What is hateful to yourself, do not to someone else. Basically, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. And, and that's not difficult at all. Anybody can do that. Lost people can do that. It's actually motivated by selfish reasons. It would be said like this from a parent. Don't hit your brother unless you want your brother to hit you. You can, you can obey that command out of sheer self-preservation. I had an older brother that was four years older than me, my oldest brother, and have uh, one next older brother and then a younger brother. And uh, there were times I wanted to punch him in the face because he would make me so angry. But he was always so much bigger and stronger than me. And, uh, but he's getting older these days. And, uh, you know, he only benched 380 pounds this year, so I should be getting close to him in about 30 years, I should say. But... Uh, but I remember I get so mad and, 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 you know, if I hit him, he would hit me 50 times back even worse. I thought this isn't even close to being fair, you know. And so uh, until the time I got the baseball bat, well, we don't need to go there. But it's not hard to fulfill the command that says don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. What is difficult is what Jesus says. He reversed it. And only in Christianity do you ever find this. Jesus is presenting the positive side. Do to others what you want them to do to you. It would be the difference between not breaking traffic laws you don't, because you don't want the consequence versus helping the pedestrian or the stranded motorist positively doing to them what you would want them to do. It's easy to keep the law because you don't want to have a consequence to you, it's harder to make a great sacrifice for someone you don't know to benefit them. This is selfless love. And you do it only for the sake of the person that you are serving. Even if that love is not reciprocated, that is the high call that the Lord is asking of us and really what Jesus Christ displayed to us. We are called to treat our spouse exactly how you want them to treat you, no matter how they respond to that treatment, whether they are grateful for it or if they're indifferent to it. To treat neighbors exactly how you want them to treat you, with love and patience and kindness and grace, co-workers, bosses, fellow believers. And so ask yourself today, is that how you love those in your life? Do you positively do for them exactly the way you would want them to treat you? People sometimes say, well, I sure wish that person was more patient with me. And the question is, are you being patient with them? That's the issue here. I sure wish that they would show some more love and respect and kindness. Well, do you show love and respect and kindness? Most of us have a Hinduistic or Buddhist theology when it comes to this golden rule. Well, I'll be nice to my spouse if they're nice to me, or I'll be, you know, I, I'm not going to be mean to them so they don't be mean. No, Jesus, anybody can do that. 
What he's saying is, do to them exactly how you want them to treat you with no thought of return. Even if they're indifferent. Even, that's what God is calling us to. This is the top shelf issue. Now, in that high call to love, we have the struggle, again, to navigate the wrongs that people do against us when they sin and violate and do wrong. He just told us in, John, uh, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, not to judge, not to be critical, not to be judgmental, not to be censoring uh, of other people. Um, we are first, he tells us in verse 3 through 5, to examine our own lives to make sure that we are clean and right before God. He warned against hypocritical judgment in verse number 5. When we see the, 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 the little piece of sawdust, he calls it a moat in your brother's eye, but there's a beam which is literally a house rafter, a large wooden plank hanging out of your own eye. So he says, don't be so fast to point out those things in other people without first examining your own life. Because what was happening in the days of Christ was the, 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 the system was a legalistic system. We taught on all this last Sunday. If you weren't here last Sunday, you really need to make sure you go back and hear that sermon as these words and truths are so essential to understand. Because I think Matthew 7 verse 1 through 6 is probably one of the most misunderstood passages. And we preached for an hour last Sunday to clarify that. So I'm not going to do that all again today. But, and you're just like, thank, thank you, Josh. We'd... I want to keep it as brief as possible. So, but the people in that day were extremely judgmental, extremely critical, extremely arrogant. They, they, they didn't want to go and confront people over sin because they wanted to help them get out of the mess. They wanted to confront them so they could shove them down and make themselves look good. This was a self-righteous, Pharisaic system. And Jesus is rebuking that kind of spirit that is among them. Now, notice in verse number five, Jesus does not say this. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the moat out of thine own eye, and then don't worry about the, the, uh, the, the moat in your brother's eye. Cast out the beam out of your own eye. And then he doesn't say ignore the moat or the speck in your brother's eye. He says, first get your eyes cleaned out. First get your life right with God so that you can effectively help the other person. Now, we think about this speck as being something small, but listen. Uh, all of us know what this is like, whether a, a child came into the house or your spouse came in and said, oh, you know, and they're, they're, they're like, hey, can you help me? I got something in my eye and they're blinking, they're, they're, their eyes all red and, and, and uh, uh, tell my wife a little bit, she, she had, uh, she was uh, dumping something out, I remember a couple years ago, and, and she got this little piece of wood in her eye and, and my wife is tough until it comes to her eyes. And uh, so her eye goes into like PTSD trauma seizure when you get something in there. I, I've had contacts. So some of you guys know what I'm talking about. You're used to touching your eyes. I don't have a real problem with that. Um, but, but she is not. She is to touch her eye. I mean, it is like, so, so I'm like, hey, can you help me? You know, we're trying to pull her eye apart just to get, a, to get the eye drops to try to get in the side. You got to lay down. And I mean, that little eye is going crazy. I'm like, your eye may blow up here and just saying, you need to calm down, you know, saying he's not safe. He's going to catch that wood on fire and burn it up in your eye, little eyeball. And, uh, and so you try to get that worked out. And, and you understand, even with a little tiny speck, I remember one of our one of our guys at church who's a, who works in the iron world and and and, and uh, does all that got a tiny just a tiny little piece of metal in his eye, but you can't have any peace in life. I mean, you hurt all day till you get that thing surgically removed. He had to get it out, and and so 
But what if, what if my wife came to me and said, hey, I got this in my eye, and, but I, I had a larger piece of splinter hanging out of my own eye. Well, I wouldn't be any good to help her until I did what? I'd had to get mine taken care of. So once I got mine taken care of, the loving thing to do, is it to ignore her splinter? No, it would be go to say, hey, uh, now I can help you effectively get yours out because uh, I can see clearly. That's the point of what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying ignore the sins of other people, ignore the splinters of other people in their eye and don't, don't, don't worry about them. No, that's a, that's a hateful attitude. That, that's a terrible thing to do. The judgmental attitude Jesus was speaking of was somebody who would look at somebody and like laugh at them for having a splinter and putting them down for it. Jesus is saying, don't have that judgmental attitude. In love, go to them, but make sure your own heart's clean so that you can effectively help them as they need that help. Does that make sense? So that's what Jesus is talking about here. And, and, and so uh, we are to first examine our own hearts. Now, Christ is calling us uh, to this. Now, the struggle for us is to navigate our approach to those who we see something in their life, some sin or fault that needs to be dealt with. We see some sin in their life and we know it needs to be addressed, but we're trying to figure out how to come and, and contact them and how to talk through that and work through that. People can mess their lives up and, and with a sin in their life, and we don't want it to mess their life up. We don't want it to mess the marriage up or their children or their spouse or their, their Christian testimony. Now, if you're a seasoned Christian, you know the challenge that this presents because every one of us deal with this probably on a weekly basis at different levels. When somebody does something wrong, and, and again, it could be a spouse, coworker, family member, whoever it could be, and you stop and you say, ah, man, you know, I know I need to go deal with this, but, but how do I approach them? How am I going to word this? I, I don't want to get into an argument. I don't want them to get defensive. I, I want to make sure my own heart's right about this. Because sometimes when people sin and, and they can aggravate us and get us upset and, and do something wrong, we deal with this in marriages and families and, and coworkers and all these situations. We, we need to make sure that, hey, God, I need to make sure my heart's right because I don't want to go out there and, and have a uh, you know, beam hanging in my own eye because I'm so angry and I'm venting to them. So, so how do I navigate this? When's the best time to talk to them? I mean, that, that can be a struggle. Anybody know what I'm talking about when you're working through all that? It's, it's, it can be very, very difficult to try to figure out how do I do this? And you need to understand the answer for this is found in verse 7 through 11. This is, we saw God's principle, and now let's look at God's provision. If one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible is Matthew 7, one, one of the most misunderstood passages that are taken out of context is Matthew 7, verse 7 through 11. If you want to know what a text means, you need to understand its context. Context will give you the meaning of the text so that you don't have a pretext. People like to twist the scriptures. They do it oftentimes with places like Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ. And they write that on their face as they go play football, thinking God's going to give them you know, the extra strength they need to win that game when Philippians 4.13 was actually written to deal with people that are going through difficulties, dealing with anxiety, dealing with worry, how to overcome uh, discontentment. And I can do all that. I can, I can have peace. I can trust God. I can be content because He strengthens me. That's the context of that. So you need to understand why it was said in the Bible. Bible, not rip it out. We don't take the Bible carte blanche and just pick that out and put it where we want it to be. And so, so here, leading up to this passage are some extremely important truths. 
When you take the Sermon on the Mount, which was preached from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, you see that Jesus has just laid down a standard of Christian living that we just can't live up to on our own. We need grace for this. We need God's strength for this. He tells them in Matthew 5, 20, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even make it to heaven. He tells us to be poor in spirit, the, 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 all the beatitudes that he lays down, the eight beatitudes. He tells us to rejoice in suffering and persecution. I mean, how are we going to do that? In Matthew 5, 40 through 45, he talks about loving our enemies. And in chapter 6, he talks about prayer and fasting and giving and doing all that with the right heart. He gets into Matthew 6, for a couple dozen verses on not worrying and then turning all those things over to God and seeking his kingdom first. And then chapter 7, how we are to deal with the, 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 the faults and, and sins of not only our own lives but others and, and, and navigating those difficulties and not judging people. And, and this is a heavy, heavy passage. Arthur Pink rightly says, Christ had presented a standard of moral excellency which is utterly unattainable by mere flesh and blood. Now here Jesus is specifically tying this prayer into the setting of dealing with people in difficult situations. And there's at least three things that we need God for in prayer as we read through Matthew 7 verse 1 through 6. And the first thing we need God in prayer for is in knowing how to confront people the right way about their sin. Not doing it in a judgmental way, but doing it in a loving, discerning way. Anybody ever had someone in your life... That um, they, you know that they need to be confronted, but it's just the challenge of saying, how am I going to maybe talk to my spouse about this? I don't want to get them at a bad time. I know they've been stressful, but boy, they've been saying and doing some things that need to be dealt with, and it's really causing some conflict among our home and our children and our family and just spiritually. And, and you're trying to figure out how to, how to word that, how to converse through that. It can be very, very difficult things sometimes in, in, in family relationships. People also often avoid conflict. They don't want to deal with problems. But when you avoid conflict, what happens is the, the splinter can get infected. And it just grows like a, like a mass behind the scenes. Uh, the Bible also tells us in Galatians 6 verse 1 and 2, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. It doesn't say ignore the person in the fault. It says go to them and seek to restore them. And so you go to them for the purpose of getting them out of the mess that they're in, considering yourself also, lest you also be tempted. And then he says, bear one another's burdens. What burdens? The burden of their sin that they're carrying. Help them get out of that, and you will fulfill the law of Christ. It calls it the law of Christ. We are commanded to do this because, again, nothing is more destructive in a person's life. Sin is more destruction. Destructive than heroin, than crack cocaine, than, than anything else, any drug, any type of alcohol, sin will destroy a person's life. But people can often be prideful. And sometimes they can get upset when you try to talk to them. You ever confronted somebody and said, hey, I need to talk to you about your attitude recently. Or I need to talk to you about what you said the other day that was, that was, it was just out of line. And a lot of times people respond, well, I didn't do anything wrong. It's not my fault. Anybody ever had somebody do that to you? Who's ever done that to somebody else? Okay, put your hands up. Don't be holding them down. You know who you are because we've all done it. Oh, it's not that bad. Besides, there's a lot of people doing it. And so we need wisdom, friends. We need boldness. We need to know how to speak the truth and grace and to deal with these things in a discerning manner. And listen to me. Don't be the person who won't take anyone's rebuke. Don't be the person who says, well, I... Don't, who are you defending? Yourself? 
though, think about this. The person that's unwilling to receive rebuke will, will hold up all of that rebuke and say, God, I'm not going to get rebuked by any human being. I want to get it all from you one day when I stand before you. It's the person who says, judge not, lest ye be judged. And you're like, I'm trying to love you and get you out of this situation. Well, if you don't want rebuke from a fellow sinner who loves you enough to confront you to try to help you through this, you're going to stand before a righteous Savior who's going to confront you about this. We should be like, thank you so much for pointing that out of my life. Because you know what? I know I'm not perfect. And it, what, what amazes me is the people who say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not, I know I'm not perfect are the same people who try to be self-righteous and not... You know what self-righteousness is? It's looking at somebody and saying, judge not! What, are you so perfect that you never have any faults that need to be addressed? Are you so good that you won't take any rebuke from your husband or wife? You will not let anything be told to you without you cutting them off, short-circuiting their conversation with you? Nobody can ever correct you then, Right? Well, I can tell you, if you're that kind of a person, you're going to live a very um, spiritually dry life, unable to be used by God because you have too much pride to receive rebuke. That is a dangerous place to be. And I can tell you, if you don't listen to the word, there is only one other teacher that is left for you, and it's called P-A-I-N. Pain will be your teacher. We all know what that's like, right? As a teenager, some of us, were, oh, I don't need to listen to my parents. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't, you know, my daddy and nothing, you know, and then we go out and run and live like a crazy person. And then we're like, man, dad, I'm so sorry. I messed up my life. And hopefully it doesn't take six months or six years or 20 or 30 years to figure that out. Some of us have gone down some painful roads and we're literally sitting in this church today because pain finally woke us up. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And, and, and I don't want to have to go through that pain. And I don't want you to go through that pain. And that's why we, with tears in our heart and our eyes, say, Friend, listen to me. Don't, don't go down that road because I know where that ends. Praise God for people like that in our life. We should wrap our arms around them and say, Thank you for telling me about this. Because you know what? I don't always see things in my own life. I'm a self-justifier often. I don't, I don't always recognize my own faults. Thank you for being a loving mirror in my life. That's how we should respond to people. But do we respond like that? No. And that's why we need the humility of God in our hearts. And, and so one of the things that we need to go to God in prayer for is how do we approach it? Secondly, we need to examine our own hearts for hypocrisy and impurity. You know, sometimes when we go to other people, we can get frustrated. We can get angry because we're upset with our spouse, our children, our parents. We're upset with the neighbor, coworker, whoever it is, a fellow Christian. And, and, and instead of going them in love, we go in to them in frustration and irritation. And I can tell you, friends, we need to make sure our own heart's right. That's why he tells us what he does in verse number three through five. Don't be a hypocrite. Make sure your eyes are clear so that you can help them effectively get that out. Because if it's not, you can do more damage to them. And you know, it's easy to see faults in others, we think, but it's, it's very difficult to find faults where? In ourselves. That's why Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And he says this. And who can know it? Who kn I don't know my own heart. So often I don't know my own heart. But you know who does? Look at verse 10. I the Lord search the heart. You know what? We need to go to God in prayer because I don't know my heart. But God you do. And so let's be like David in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 4. God, search me and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in that way that's everlasting. And then thirdly, we need to know how to speak and keep silent to those that Christ refers to in verse number 6 as dogs and swine or hogs. 
He says, give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine. If you're a Christian, you know what this is like, and you probably know what it's like more as we're living in the world that we do today. You ever shared your faith with somebody? And I used to do construction for about six years before I went in the ministry. And, and uh, I love that. Word. I love to work around guys. I love to share my faith. I went to public high school. I love to every day be able to interact with kids and, and talk about the things of God. And, but there was also some challenges with that when people start taking God's name and throwing it around and just running it down. And, and so it's, you, you have to, like, you know, how far should I go when they begin to, to mock God? How, when do I keep silent? When do I, the Bible calls it casting your pearls before swine, so you don't want to do that, and you want to restrict sometimes those conversations. And, and so here he says, don't judge in verse 1, but then he says, make sure you have clear judgment and discernment in verse 6. So, so what he says here is, is there's got to be an understanding and a discernment when you are to share and when you're to keep silence. You know, sometimes Jesus doesn't want you to share the gospel. Did you hear me? Sometimes he doesn't want you to share the gospel. That sounds awkward, doesn't it? But didn't Jesus do that? Listen to what he says in Matthew 21, verse 43. He says, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth fruits thereof. He hid the truth from the Jews after they kept rejecting, rejecting, rejecting. He's like, you don't want it, you won't have it. He began to speak to them in parables so that hearing they would not hear and seeing they would not see. And praise God, he opened the door to the Gentiles. Amen, fellow Gentiles. Y'all are Gentiles, you know that, right? Well, we're actually Jews in Abraham by faith, but... Praise God that God has brought us to salvation. Acts 18, verse 6, this is exactly what Paul did as well. It says, And when they, or the Jews, opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. Henceforth I go into the Gentiles. There's a time to share, and then there's a time to say, You know what? This person is, is taking the truths of God, and the, and the hogs and the dogs, what that refers to is, is, is unbelievers who treat God's truth as something that has no value. It's like dragging it through the mud and God says, don't do that. You, you take that truth and you leave them. You let them stay in the dark. They need more pain to wake them up because if they reject the word, you can't force feed people, right? And so in these situations, how are we to find the wisdom to navigate how are we going to know when to talk to somebody, how to talk to them, how to make sure what's in our own heart is right because I don't even know my own heart and how do I navigate the difficult conversation with people that, that how much do I share and when do I need to be quiet? And the answer is found in verse, again, 7 through 11. Look what he says in verse 7. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Friends, how often we neglect that simple invitation that the Lord gives us to prayer in the midst of dealing with problems in people. How often we look to people to get answers, discuss it with others, and then they end up spreading it around. You know, what happens is somebody gets offended instead of going to God about it. Oh, I can't believe, can you believe what this person did and what they said, da 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 And then that person tells the next person, by the time it gets to the 10th person, that person you gossiped about is a murderer, but somehow you're still alive. I mean, this is how that thing goes. Don't go to other people and have to tell them everything that's happened. Take that to God. Take that to Christ. Now, what does this verse mean? Let's break this down. The word ask is used 71 times in 68 verses in the New Testament. Ateo is the Greek word. It means to ask, to beg, to call, to crave, to require, and desire. It is a lesser 
asking a greater. And in our situation, it's the believer requesting from the Father. It's also in the present imperative in the Greek, which means it's a continual asking. You could literally translate this as verse 7. Continually ask and it shall be given you. Keep doing this. And what you find is this is, this is God calling us to this as a pattern of our life. The Bible says in Psalms 50 verse 15, And call upon me in the day of what? Okay, y'all, is that verse up there? Okay. <laughs> call upon me in the day of... You know, we do a lot of times, well, I feel bad because I really, my prayer life, I really start seeking God when things go wrong. You know what he says? Call upon me then. You know, God's not offended by that. He's like, you haven't been listening to the word. I brought some pain in your life. You're going to listen to something. Right? So, so call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me, and I will answer thee. Luke 18, 1, he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men should always pray and not faint or grow weary and, and, and downtrodden in heart. And then James 1, 5 was written in the context of dealing with trials. To this 12 scattered tribes scattered throughout uh, that region, he says, blessed are you when you fall into different trials and temptations, knowing that trials uh, grow your faith, it perfects your faith. But then he says in verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, what that's saying is if you, if you don't understand why God brought these challenges in your life, why the difficulties, it says, let him ask of God, and God giveth to him liberally, that's one of the only times you'll see the word liberal used in the Bible, but giveth him liberally or freely, and, and, and abradeth not, God's not going to restrict that from you, and it's going to be given. So when, you, when you're in the midst of a difficulty, you go to God seeking Him in prayer. He's going to bring in some way the truth and the light of why that happened to you. Now, the word seek is a stronger word. It's zeteo. It, is, it means an attempt to learn by careful investigation or searching. So he says, ask and it shall be given you. Seek. Seeking is asking plus acting. It implies an earnest praying joined with endeavor to fulfill that. It's the same word used in Luke 15 when it says, and the shepherd lost one of the sheep and he went out seeking that one lost sheep. The woman in Luke 15 who lost one of the coins sought through the house turning up everything until she found that lost coin. This is a desperation. And if there is one word that I would say is different between asking and seeking, seeking places it in a realm of, of, of extreme priority. You now prioritize this like everything else gets set aside. I must do this. I am now seeking this as a way of my life. So I went from asking to now my life is prioritizing. I am seeking God in prayer about this. And then it comes to another word. And the last word is what? Okay, there's a couple of you paying attention. Verse 7. So ask, it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. And then the third word is knock. Yeah, knock, and it shall be open to you. Now the word knock in the English, the etymology of that, it goes back into a Greek word from where we get the word press from. So, so we, are, we are pressing now. It is, again, the word knock is in the present imperative. This is, this is literally what it would be like. I know you're home. I know you're in there. I saw the curtains move. Are you still behind the door? You need to open up. I mean, if that happened to any of us, we'd be like, this guy is annoying. Leave. My lack of response, hasn't it told you I don't want to talk? It doesn't matter. 
Open the door. I mean, it's, this, is, this is literally the context of what Christ is saying. Knock, keep knocking, and don't stop knocking. Now, none of us want anybody to pursue us like that. None of us. It would be, it would be burdensome, wouldn't it? It would be annoying. Can you give me some room? Some space? And yet, God invites us to behave like that. To Him. He's like, I want you to pursue me asking and seeking and just keep on knocking. It's an incredible reality. It's the same thing if you read Luke 18, you understand the parable there that Jesus is talking about. Now, like much different than us, God does not get exhausted and burdened by our pursuit. Rather, He invites us to this. And what Jesus is teaching us here is prayer is not simply plan A. It is not plan B. It is plan A, plan B, plan C. It is step one, two, and three. And we see this with guys like the Apostle Paul. Remember when Paul had the thorn in the flesh, a message of Satan that buffeted him, and, and he said, I besought the Lord not once, not twice, but three times that this would be taken away from me. It was as though Paul was asking and then seeking and then knocking. He just wouldn't stop. And it wasn't until he got to that third tier did God answer him. You say, why does God delay? Because many times God brings enough pressure into our life to cause us to understand our own need of God. It is, it is what happened to the NFL this week, right? I was watching the game actually Monday. And... Um, Saw, saw a football player, Damar Hamlin, and praise the Lord that he's, he's awake and responding, and, and what a blessing. No, nobody in the NFL was thinking about typically praying. They're not as, guys on the ESPN were not especially focused on spending time in prayer, right? Is that right? I mean, they weren't opening the game like, hey, every guy, everybody, we're going we're gonna to say a pledge of allegiance, and then we're going to have a word of prayer. That's nice in NASCAR, isn't it? It's pretty cool. But... They, 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 don't, they don't typically do that. And so when DeMar Hamlin went down, I can tell you, um, it's, it's really easy to be an atheist when you are living in sin and you have no consequences evidently hitting your life. But, but like our soldiers down here, like John, who served overseas in combat, atheists don't exist in the foxholes. When, you, when your life is literally seconds away of death, uh, your, your, your destruction of God in your mind evaporates and you're like, I need something more than myself because my own mortality has just smacked me in the face. And I need something. I've done 140 funerals. I've seen thousands of people come into this place. We've had services with hundreds of teenagers, hundreds of teenagers in this room with tears in their eyes, scared to death, and no dope, no, no marijuana, no drug, nothing else is going to appease your mind. You need God. You need Christ. And I've seen tons of people come to Christ over the years, hundreds of people, because they realized in that their own mortality, their own frailty. And... And so, even in Christ's life, we see this thrice prayer, this threefold prayer when he was in the garden. 
and the, and the bitter cup was handed to him and, and the sin of the world would be placed upon his shoulders. He, he went away and prayed, came back. The disciples were praying or sleeping. He goes away. The Bible says Jesus prayed the same words again, came back. They're still sleeping. And it says, and Jesus went away the third time praying the same words. You want to know what Jesus' plan A, B, and C is when you come into the greatest conflict in his life? You pray and then you pray some more and then you pray some more. You ask, and then you seek, and then you keep knocking. There is nothing else higher than that. Nothing else higher. Just yesterday, I spoke to a man who shared with me a very difficult situation that he was dealing with at work. He's an older gentleman. And he said, um, he said there, was a, there was a guy at work um, who lost his wife. He was an older man. He lost his wife. They'd been married for a lot of years. He was off work for about a month. And when he came back, his whole demeanor was different. He was an angry man, short-tempered. He was gruff with people. He was unkind. And people around him, obviously, they were showing him grace for a season, for a few weeks, but it just, it was just overboard. And, and, and one of the guys came to this gentleman from our church and he said, he said you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and talk to that guy because, you know, it, even in spite of what happened, he doesn't have a right to be treating everyone around him like this. This is just, somebody needs to talk to him. And the man from our church, he said, you know, just, I'll talk to him. So that evening, he didn't talk to him yet. He just went home and he cried out to God and he prayed for that man with sincerity and diligence and tears. And he lifted up that man in prayer. When he came back to work the next morning, his coworkers came to him and said, what did you say to him? He said, what do you mean? He said, that guy's whole demeanor has changed today. He's positive. He's kind. He's happy. He's being nice to people. Like, what, what did you say? He said, I didn't say anything. He said, I just prayed for him. I wonder how many things in our life that we have a problem and we turn into four problems because we try to strong arm it. Well, I'm just going to talk to that person. I'm going to straighten them out. Well, you go ahead and do that, and you find out how much more problems you just created for yourself. Why don't you slow down and do what Jesus says here? Ask and seek and knock and ask some more and seek some more and knock some more. And when you've gotten to the end of that reality, then you see what God can do and stop trying to do it your own way. He said in... He said, and some of the guys who were the most irritated him said, you know, we all got, our, got, got these Christmas gifts for each other. Let's get one for him too. And so they, they got this guy a Christmas gift. And, uh, and when they gave it to him, the man began to cry. And he says, I, I, I need to tell you guys, I am so sorry for the way I've behaved. He said, I'm actually a Christian man and, and I have not been acting like that. And I am so sorry. And this man began to break down and cry to me, telling me the story. Just, that's... That's letting God be God. That's saying, Lord, I can't fix my spouse, my parents, my children, my neighbors, my coworkers. If, if we can't change people's hearts, I can't even change my own heart. I need to back up, stay in my own circle and say, dear God, would you help me? And I know I need to confront this situation. I know I need to go to them, but I will make a mess of it if I don't have you. My heart is burdened for them. I don't want to see them go down this road. I don't want to see them mess up their life. We all deal with this. Probably on a weekly, if not monthly basis, at least. We all have people who are like, man, you know, I, 
I know I should say something. Then come back to Matthew 7 and say, you know what? I need to ask. You know what? Some people have so twisted this around. They say, oh, you know, this is an open envelope. You know, ask God and he'll give you and seek and you'll find and knock and it'll be opened. You know, and then, you know, the Bible says you have not because you asked not. So I'm going to start asking and and uh, and then they'll come and say, Pastor, you know, God didn't answer my prayer. I was asking and seeking and knocking. He didn't give me that new job or that new car. Oh, you think he wrote Matthew 7, verse 7 through 11 for your materialism? Oh, you thought that was about you, right? Oh, that, no, no, that, that's about how you deal with other people that you're working through offenses with. That's what that's about. That's what most everybody doesn't understand about Matthew 7, verse 7 through 11. Jesus wasn't like, hey, I'm going to teach on like judging others. Then I'm going to jump over to prayer. And then I'm going to jump back to dealing with other people in verse 12. And then no, no, no. God is infinitely wise and he lays this down exactly how we need it to be. Friend, how much we need prayer. How much we need to seek, ask, and knock. It's important to know that all these words are verbs. Ask, seek, and knock are all verbs that are in the imperative in the Greek, which means it is asking, it is seeking, it is knocking continually. I like what John Piper said in his book, Desiring God. He explains why more Christians are not asking, seeking, and knocking. And if you're not a fan of all of John Piper's theology, neither am I, but he's got a lot of things right. He says, unless I'm badly mistaken, one of the main reasons to so many of God's children don't have a significant life of prayer is not so much that we don't want to, but that we don't plan to. If you want to take a four-week vacation, he says, you don't get up one summer morning and say, hey, let's go, because you don't have anything ready and you don't know where you're going. But that is how many of us treat prayer. We get up one day after another and realize that significant time of prayer should be part of our life, but we never prepare for it. He said, if you don't plan for a vacation, you'll probably stay home watching TV. And that's literally what happens to much of our prayer lives. He says, let us therefore take time this very day to rethink our priorities and how prayer fits in it. Make some new resolve. Try some new venture with God. Set a time, set a place. Choose a portion of Scripture to guide you. Don't be tyrannized by the press of a busy day. For the glory of God and the fullness of your own joy, seek Him. Thank you for that. What a, what, a, what a help that is for us. Friend, do you have a plan for prayer tomorrow? Let me close with the final thoughts. Look at God's reward given to us in verse 8. He says, For everyone that asketh, receiveth. He that seeketh, findeth. To him that knocketh, it shall be opened. So if you ask, he's going to give it to you. If you seek, you're going to find. If you knock, it's going to be opened. What's interesting, the word open there comes from a Greek word that not only means like a door being opened, but your eyes being opened. Your understanding being opened. It's the same thing used in Matthew 9.30 to speak of opening blind eyes as well as in Acts 26.18 to opening their spiritual eyes. God will open the reality that you need to know of the situation. Now, God will also not deceive you because he says in verse 9 through 10, what man of you, if he has a son, ask of him a loaf of bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? You know, no father who loves their child is going to do something like that because it could hurt them. And the application is in verse 11, if ye then being what? Are we born good or born evil? Did Jesus say mankind is evil and in their nature here? Yeah, he presupposes that. Oh, that's offensive. Jesus didn't care. Verse 11, he cared more about truth than that, right? 
He says, if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, which is in, your Father which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask Him? This is, this is the reality that, that if we as evil can do good things, we serve a God who's a how much more God. What a wonderful reality. Now, sometimes people ask me this, why doesn't God answer my prayer? Let me just close with a few answers to that. Why doesn't God answer my prayers? Well, sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because we still have a plank hanging out of our eye. And, and who's had this happen before? You're, you're dealing with somebody and, and uh, you're, you're really wanting to go to them. You're, you're fired up, but you say, you know what? I'm going to slow down. I'm going to spend some time in prayer. This happens among spouses. This happens among peers and friends or whatever. And, uh, and then they go to God and they really get serious about seeking God about it. You know what happens? Almost every time they come back and say, you know what, I say, what did God show you? And they say, you know what, God showed me how much sin there is in my own heart. And then when you get that taken care of, I can tell you, then it starts working. I, had a, I, had a, I can't even tell you how many times this has happened. It's so beautiful. A couple years ago, I had a couple that was counseling, and they were in a bad way. I mean, it, it didn't look like that marriage was going to last. It was just, it, it was, separation was there. It was all, I mean, it was, it was in a tough place. And... Um, and, and, and one of the spouses just criticized and criticized and criticized. And, and, and they had a lot of justifiable reasons. I mean, there was a lot of things wrong in this other, their spouse's life. And, um, and, and, and what happened was amazing. It was like supernatural. After a couple of counselings, they came back. And, and, and the one spouse who was really giving the other one a hard time, again, they, they had justifiable reasons. But they were so broken. And I said, I said, I can see you're really heavy today. Can you tell me what's going on? And. They said, you know what? God has shown me how much pride I have. And it's broken me. They were just here. And, and I can tell you, it was, it was literally, it seemed like from that point forward, the, the supernatural grace of God that revealed to them their own sin just dumped all over their spouse. That's how God works. When we slow down and say, let me make my own sin worse in my heart than what theirs is. Let me repent and get right with God. And only then. So sometimes God doesn't answer because we have some things we need to get right. Sometimes we're not praying according to God's will, according to James 4.3 as well. Thirdly, sometimes we don't pray with faith, according to James 1.5-7. We ask and then we don't believe God will and then we're like a wave of the sea tossed back and forth. Number four, sometimes it's not God's timing. Sometimes God's timing is different than our timing. According to Acts 1, 6, and 7, they wanted the kingdom now, but Jesus says it's not the time for you to know. Sometimes God's answers are no. The early church laughed at me because I thought it was Randy Travis that sang that song, answers the unanswered prayer song. I haven't heard these things for a long time, but when God doesn't answer prayer, and somebody said, no, that's Garth Brooks. I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have quoted it probably if it was Garth Brooks. You know? and somebody probably write me a letter over that. You know, I love Garth Brooks. But you know, sometimes God says no. Just like a loving parent says no to their kids, sometimes God says no to us because he knows better. And then six, sometimes God answers us, but not in the way we expect to be answered. I mean, when, when, when Israel was facing Goliath and God says, I'll answer you, look at that little teenage boy standing there with a little bag of rocks. And they'd be like, nah, we get another answer. We need to, we need to figure something else out here, God. And, and, and David was the great giant slayer that he had for them. You know, sometimes God answers us, but not in the ways that we always understand. An unknown author captured this truth in the following. He said, I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. 
I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to obey. I, was asked, I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power and the praise of men. I was given weakness to sense my need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I hoped for. In spite of myself, my prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. It was this week I was talking to an older man from the church, and his health was just, I mean, just been, been in a rough way. Probably one of the most difficult health situations in our church by far. Just, just very, very bad off. And over the last year, his health has just really, really taken some, some bad steps. And even in the last 30 days, he's lost 20 pounds. He said, look at my arms. They're just so thin. And, and he looked at me with tears in his eyes. He says, you know, I, I prayed to God this year that he would restore my strength. God, can you give me my physical strength back? But it's not been there. He said, and what's interesting, as my physical strength has gone down, my spiritual strength has just gone up. He said he's sharing the gospel, witnessing. He said, I'm so thankful. What in your life do you need to come and say, God, I need to ask you. I need to seek, prioritize you. I need to knock until I get an answer because... If I do this thing, if I get involved in this situation, if I talk to my spouse or I talk to this person, I'm only going to make it worse. I need your wisdom, God. I need to know how to deal with this. I get involved in it. I get emotional. I get frustrated. I, I say the wrong things. The timing's wrong. I get in the flesh. God, please help me. I love that person. I don't want to see them go down a wrong road. I don't want to see God's name dishonored in their life. come to this and say, who are sufficient for such things? But our sufficiency is of God, isn't it? So let us come today, whether at your seat or at an altar, and say, God, I need you. I need your wisdom. Every one of us, listen to me, are going to deal with situations this week, this month, and this year that we're going to need to confront people on. There'll be a problem, and if we try to fix it, we're going to create three or four problems. But if we get God involved... People will come up and say, what did you say? It's not about what I said to them. It's about what I said to God. And it's about what God did in them. I can't change anybody's heart. That's God's work, right? Let's stay in our own circle and say, God, if any change is going to happen, it's going to be from you. Don't strong arm people. Don't try to enforce your will on anybody. That's a man-made system. How do we want other people to treat us? Let's leave here today treating other people like that, right? I don't, need to have, I don't need to have them do something for me before I start that. I can start doing that for them because of what Jesus has done for me. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you stood before God and you don't know if heaven will be your home, today I'll be down front. We'll have folks at these doors. We'd love to talk with you and show you from the Bible how you can know when your life's over you'll be in heaven. You know, the Bible tells us we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you and I sin three times a day for a year, that's over a thousand sins. One day we'll stand before God, give an account of our life. And the Bible says we'll all be guilty before God. And the Bible tells us in Revelation 21 verse 8 that even all liars would have their part in the lake of fire. 
There's no way for me or you to get to heaven on our own. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. You must be born again. And it's not by saying, Jesus, forgive me. It's about understanding He is Lord, bowing your life to the Lordship of Christ, truly repenting of your sins and confessing Christ. And today, we could show you from the Word of God. And you could do that today. Trust in Christ, friend. Let's all stand this morning as we close in prayer. Maybe today you just need to come and spend a moment in prayer. The altar's open. We would invite you to come. If you need to make a spiritual decision, we invite you to come today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truths. God, we thank you that you show us our own insufficiency. God, in the midst of the the trials and the relationships, we see how frail we are. But God, isn't it even in those times that you elevate our dependency upon you? I pray that it wouldn't take cardiac arrest to get a hold of a nation. I pray that it wouldn't take pain to wake us up. But God, I pray that your word would be enough. So awaken us today through the teaching of your word to draw our hearts. Forgive us for self-reliance. May we trust in Christ. If there's anyone today that doesn't know you, may you bring salvation. And if there's anyone today trying to navigate through some of those difficult reconciliation situations. I pray you would bring healing and wisdom and knowledge and your divine grace. In Jesus' name, amen.